let me take a moment here, a personal moment. These worship services are planned by Scott at least a month in advance. And I'm a little overwhelmed by the fact that the scripture read, the first hymn sung, all have to do with the waters crashing over us. I lost a dear friend yesterday. Worked with him now. What have we worked with him? Two or three years? Can't remember exactly. Ted Strawbridge, who preached here back in what, March, I think, or something like that. Ted, about 60 years of age, he drowned yesterday. Exactly what the story is, I don't know. But the Lord brought Ted here and he stirred up this presbytery. And what this presbytery has not done for many, many years, it is now doing. And that is planting new churches. And then, in the Lord's unique timing, Ted told us that he had been called to work for MNA in Atlanta, the General Assembly Agency. And so, as a committee, uh, we took steps, David and I both serve on that committee, we took steps to change how we did our business, to change our leadership and so forth and so on, having no idea whatsoever that soon Ted would not be available to us. His wife's name is Mary Lou. He has a daughter, son-in-law. If you will allow me, let me take a moment and pray. Father, your ways are so often beyond our understanding. But as Ted worships you this morning in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine, may we now focus our attention upon you as Ted would have us to do. Be with Mary Lou and the family and in this time of incredible pain and of confusion and of hurt, may you be their comfort and be their strength. And Lord, may it become clearer and clearer to us in the days, weeks, months, years to come precisely what it is that you have done and why you have done it. Because, Father, to me, it just seems so strange. It just seems, forgive me, Lord, it, it seems wrong. And yet I know it's not wrong. I know your ways are yea and amen. So Father, as we continue our examination of the life of Joseph, who had to often think that your ways were wrong, Father, help us to see your sovereign hand upon our lives, upon the life of the Strawbridge family. Father, open our eyes, even as the waves roar up around us. Father, keep our eyes focused on you. And all God's people said, amen. 
So this morning, we're going to continue our study in Genesis 37 through 50 by looking at Genesis chapter 41. And uh, now next week, we're going to examine chapters 42 through 43. It's a lengthy passage of scripture. I simply won't have time to read it. So please take the time this week to read Genesis chapters 42 and 43 and perhaps read all of Genesis 37 through 50 one more time. Uh, do that in preparation for next week's sermon. But now let me ask you to open your Bibles to Genesis 41, and I'm just going to read a few of these opening verses. Genesis 41, verse 1, after two whole years, two whole years of Joseph continuing in prison, even after having interpreted the dream, the positive dream of the cupbearer. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Fell asleep, dreamed a second time. Behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Let's pray together. Father, as we now look into your word, I pray that you would teach us, instruct us, challenge us, encourage us. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. He serves honorably during World War I, but back at home in western Missouri, he fails as a shopkeeper and twice as a farmer. He's active in local politics, and he's stunned to be asked by the powers that be to run for the U.S. Senate, and behold, he's elected and becomes a United States senator. Then just a handful of years later, unexpectedly, he's nominated in 1944 to serve as Franklin Delano Roosevelt's vice president. And shortly after they're inaugurated, FDR dies, and Harry Truman, failed shopkeeper, failed farmer, Harry Truman becomes president of the United States. Four years later, 1948, no one expects him to be elected on his own merit. But he wins a stunning upset 
victory. That's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable story. But of course, even more remarkable is the rise of a Hebrew slave incarcerated because he's been accused of rape. The rise of that slave, of that prisoner, to the office of prime minister of Egypt. It's a story so familiar to us that perhaps it just doesn't stun us the way that it should. But it's absolutely unthinkable. A Hebrew slave incarcerated because he's accused of attempting to rape a high official of Egypt now rises to the position of prime minister of Egypt. It's a tremendous reflection upon the biblical truth taught in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. It teaches us that no one rises to a position of authority, be it the president of the United States, be it the prime minister of Egypt. No one rises to such positions except those instituted by God. This is God's doing, both in the life of Harry Truman and in the life of Joseph. Now, two weeks ago, in Genesis chapter 40, we watched, we heard, as Joseph is supernaturally enabled by the Lord to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and chief baker. Well, Joseph, you'll remember, knowing that the cupbearer, I mean, the baker is going to have, going to lose his head over this whole thing. But the cupbearer, Joseph knows that the cupbearer will soon be released, rehired, serve once more at the Pharaoh's right hand. So Joseph asks him, please speak to the Pharaoh on my behalf. I don't, I haven't done anything that, that justifies me being here in prison. But as we've just read, for two years, the cupbearer, we're told at the end of Genesis 40, the cupbearer simply forgets about Joseph. Just forgets about him. I'm back in where I want to be. Yeah, that guy was helpful, but who needs him? But then the Lord speaks to Pharaoh through two dreams, just as he spoke to Joseph in two dreams, just as he spoke through two dreams to the prisoners, to Joseph's fellow prisoners. Now, let me just say a word about this. I, I won't judge. I, I simply won't. I will not judge whether God still speaks to people in dreams. I mean, there are reports, you may have read some of them, reports of such dreams occurring among Muslims in the Middle East. Now, personally, I've never had such a dream, for which I'm probably grateful because I would have probably died on the spot. So, but 
what I have and what you have, and, you, and we really need to not, we just can't lose sight of this. I mean, you might think, boy, I'd love to have a dream and the Lord tell me precisely what's going to happen. And so, But what do we have? We have the Holy Scriptures. You don't have to wait for a dream to know the Lord's will for your life. So many people spend so much time saying, boy, I want to know what the Lord's will for my life is. You know what the Lord's will for your life is. It's revealed in Holy Scripture. That's the Lord's will for your life, to live in faithful obedience to him, confident that if you are striving in his strength to live a life pleasing to him, then you can boldly, listen to me, you can boldly do what you think pleases him and is best for you. Because what are you taught in the book of Proverbs? You're taught in Proverbs 16, verse 9, that while you're planning the way, what's the Lord doing? He's directing your steps. So don't spend all this time you know, an existential angst over what is the Lord's will for my life. The Lord's will for your life is to be faithful and obedient to him. And then do what you think is best for you to do, what you believe would be pleasing to the Lord, confident that he's going to open doors, he's going to close doors, because as you plan your way, he's going to direct your steps. I promise you. Well, in Genesis 41.8, the Pharaoh is disturbed. He's, he's troubled by his dreams. He seeks an explanation for his dreams from those that he thinks are skillful uh, in magic and the interpretation of dreams, but they're unable to tell him the significance uh, of what he has dreamed. So now the cupbearer, remembers Joseph. And in verses 9 through 13, he proceeds to tell Pharaoh about a young Hebrew slave who accurately interpreted for him and for the chief baker their dreams a couple of years ago when they were in prison. He probably doesn't want to talk about that, but you remember when we were in prison, Pharaoh. Well, this Hebrew slave interpreted our dreams. So immediately, Pharaoh has Joseph taken. Now, notice this. He has Joseph taken from where? The scripture is really interesting at this point. He has him taken from the pit. It's the same word from Genesis chapter 37. The same word used in Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, the Lord delivered Joseph from the pit in which his brothers tossed him. Now, in Genesis 41, the Lord delivers Joseph from a second pit. So, from what pits has the Lord delivered you? I, I could give you a long list. I'm serious. I could give you a long list, and some of my list you might find shocking. But I could give you a long list, but instead of, instead of doing that, I'm going to use the words of the psalmist 
with whom I could testify that on many occasions he drew me up from the pit of my destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And, and furthermore, listen, this is what the psalmist reminds you of. Psalm 103, verse 4. The psalmist writes, he reminds you that the Lord redeems your life from the pit and he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Believer, the Lord is loving and merciful to you. And now here in Genesis chapter 41, the Lord lovingly and mercifully lifts up Joseph from the pit. You look at verse 14, Joseph prepares to stand in a respectful way before the Pharaoh. He shaves, Egyptians were clean shaven and he changed his clothes. And then as Joseph stands before the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh begins by telling Joseph, listen, I've heard you can interpret dreams. And Joseph in verse 16, he is quick to tell the Pharaoh, it's not me. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. That is an accurate answer. So Pharaoh, tells Joseph his dream. In his first dream, he sees seven plump and seven thin cows and watches as the thin cows devour the plump cows. And then in his second dream, he sees seven good ears of corn and seven blighted ears, and he watches as the blighted ears swallow up the good ears. And then in verse 24, Pharaoh tells Joseph, that's my dream, and there's nobody here who can tell me what it means. None of these magicians of mine have any idea what this dream means. But Joseph, in verses 25 through 32, inspired by the Lord, boldly, boldly, I mean, remember what's going on here. You've got a foreigner, a foreigner, a despised foreigner. Egyptians despised anyone who wasn't an Egyptian. You've got a despised foreigner, slave, prisoner, standing before what at that time was probably just about the most powerful ruler in that part of the whole world. But in verses 25 through 32, Joseph boldly tells Pharaoh, first of all, he tells Pharaoh, well, your dream, two dreams, they're one dream. God has revealed, God has revealed to you what he's about to do. Now, there is, there is a volume of theology tied up in that statement. God is revealed to you what he's about to do. Joseph is telling Pharaoh that this is what the one who sovereignly rules over Egypt and in its economy is about to do. He's going to send seven years of bountiful harvest followed by seven years of famine. Look at verse 30. A famine so severe, Joseph says, that it will consume the land. Now, in verse 32, Joseph tells Pharaoh that the doubling of his dreams means that these events are fixed by God and that God will shortly bring them to pass. Now, 
Pharaoh doesn't say, um, Joseph doesn't use the term Yahweh. He doesn't use the term Lord in capital letters. Pharaoh has no idea who Yahweh or the Lord is. So Joseph uses the more generic term God. But apparently Pharaoh does believe that there is a supreme being who rules over all. I mean, I'll give Pharaoh this. He's not a complete fool because scripture says only a fool believes there is no God. But then, and this is, this is even more stunning. I mean, here's this, this foreigner, this, this slave accused of rape, this, this prisoner standing before the Pharaoh. And Joseph proceeds to put himself at risk by daring to boldly offer Pharaoh unsolicited advice. He trusts the Lord to give him the wisdom to speak with such boldness to the king. Now, just some quick history here. 1,300 years later, Nehemiah will stand before the king of Persia and he will boldly request that the king of Persia permit the exiled Judeans to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the devastated city. What's interesting to me is that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 5, Nehemiah tells us that just before he spoke to the king, he offered up a quick prayer to the Lord. Well, quickly, I mean, obviously, clearly, it was a very short prayer. I mean, you don't leave the king of Persia hanging. You don't say to the king of Persia, give me an hour, I have to pray first. I mean, obviously, it was, Lord, help me. Here we go. Lord, help me. And with trust in the Lord, Nehemiah risks speaking forthrightly to the king of Persia, and by God's grace, the king grants his request. Well, furthermore, in the New Testament, Jesus assures his followers that when they are on trial before rulers, he will give them words to speak. Now, let me ask you, because I've been here. I know what I'm talking about. Aren't there times when you want to speak up for the Lord, but you just don't know what to say? And so maybe you just choose to say nothing. Well, trust the Lord. Say a quick prayer. Dare to speak. Lord will give you the words you need to honor him and to bless others, which is what he does here in Genesis 41. Now, because now Joseph, an imprisoned foreign slave, boldly, look at this, he boldly advises the Pharaoh, one, to appoint a discerning and wise man over all of Egypt, and two, to appoint overseers to store up one-fifth of the harvest during the seven years of plenty. And by doing so, Joseph says in verse 36, the land will not perish through the famine. Another favorite proverb of mine is Proverbs 21.1, which teaches that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And now... Just as the Lord turned the heart of Persia's king to, to heed Nehemiah's request, 
So now the Lord turns the heart of Egypt's king. I mean, in verse 37, you're told that the advice of a foreign slave and prisoner is found pleasing to Pharaoh. That's just about unthinkable. He's found pleasing to Pharaoh. And as a matter of fact, look at verse 38. In verse 38, the Pharaoh rhetorically asks, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Now, I wonder how the, uh, the Pharaoh's court magicians liked hearing that. I mean, Pharaoh's convinced that the spirit of God resides in this Hebrew slave and not in them. Pharaoh is convinced that Joseph's discernment and wisdom comes from a, a power higher than any other in his court. And therefore, as, as I read the text, it appears that immediately Pharaoh makes a decision. He decides he's going to appoint Joseph to be prime minister of Egypt. He places this former Hebrew slave and prisoner over his house and his people. And in verse 40, he decrees that no one else will be any higher in, any higher in Egypt than Joseph except for himself, only in regard to the throne. Will he be greater than Joseph in all Egypt? So from the pit in which his brothers threw him to overseer of Potiphar's house, from the pit of a prison to prime minister of Egypt. I mean, who would dare imagine such a thing? Who but the Lord could so weave together the threads of Joseph's life? So what's the Lord weaving together in your life? What's he weaving? Who could imagine what the Lord will do? Believer, no matter your circumstances, be they good or painful, Jesus promises that those who seek first the kingdom will receive many times more both in this life and in the life to come. Now, Verses 42 and 43, Pharaoh gives to Joseph the symbols of his authority. He gives him an official ring. He gives him fine linen to wear. He gives him a gold chain to place around his neck. And he also orders that Joseph be given the second most important chariot in Egypt in which to ride. And furthermore, he commands that all his people are to bow down before Joseph, which, which I can't help taking note of would include Potiphar and his wife. You're all to bow down before Joseph. Remember his dream? People are bowing down. Not yet his family, that's coming. Now, Pharaoh also gives Joseph a new name. Some 1,300 years later, Daniel and his friends will be given Babylonian names. And here in verse 45, the Pharaoh gives Joseph an Egyptian name, Zaphanath Paneah. Now, let me just tell you a secret. If you're just impressed by how easily I pronounce that name, let me tell you something. 
Nobody knows how that name's supposed to be pronounced. So when you come to those kinds of names, just be bold. And if somebody corrects you, just know in the back of your mind, the one correcting you doesn't really know. So just be bold, okay? But let's just call him Z for short, okay? It's a name which some suggest means that God speaks and he lives. Joseph is also given uh, an Egyptian bride named Asenath. She's the daughter of the highest of priests in Egypt. So obviously the question that might occur to us is should Joseph marry an Egyptian? Well, we know that God did command his people not to intermarry with Canaanites, but I just have to observe that the, there's nothing in the text that suggests that Joseph errs by marrying this Egyptian. Now, look at verse 46. All of this takes place when Joseph is 30, 30 years old. He's been 13 long, and it's been 13 long and painful years since he was sold into slavery. But now, in verses 46 through 49, as prime minister, Joseph visits all of Egypt during the seven years of plenty, and we're told that he stores up so much grain, it can't be measured. Now, look at verses 50 and 52. Here you learn that Joseph and his wife are blessed with two sons. The naming of those sons is really important because, listen, while Joseph adapts Egyptian customs, he doesn't embrace Egyptian beliefs. Paul said that when I'm with the Jews, I live like a Jew. When I'm with the Romans, I live like a Romans. When I'm with those that don't have the law, I live like those who don't have the law, except that I keep the law of Christ. So Joseph adapts Egyptian customs, but he doesn't embrace Egyptian beliefs. And that is seen here in, the fact, in light of the fact that Joseph names, gives to his sons Hebrew names instead of Egyptian names. He names his first son Manasseh. By this Hebrew name, Joseph testifies that God has made him forget all the hardship he experienced in his father's house. Now, as will become evident, his story, as his story continues, I mean, while Joseph no longer dwells on his past hardships, he doesn't forget his family. And then he gives to his second son the Hebrew name Ephraim, by which he testifies that the Lord has made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. He's known hardship in Canaan. He's known affliction in Egypt. And as the story unfolds, we will come to realize that Joseph understands that the affliction and hardships he suffered have been used by the Lord to bring him to the place of being able to save the lives of many people, including his own family. Now note, it's interesting that in the future, 400 years or so in the future, none of the 12 tribes of Israel will bear Joseph's name. But he will be doubly honored by the naming 
of two of the 12 tribes after his two sons. So as Genesis 41 ends, seven years of famine begin. The people cry out to Pharaoh for food. He sends them to Joseph, who opens the storehouses and provides the grain that they need to make bread. But now look at verse 57. The famine so impacts all the known world that people come from everywhere to buy grain. And this includes the people of Canaan. And of course, that's information that sets the stage for what is to follow. Genesis 41 clearly demonstrates that God is sovereignly in control. One commentator observes that the pilgrimage of Joseph from slave to prime minister of Egypt, it parallels the future story of Israel as escapees from Egypt to the great nation under David and Solomon, to the, to the life of David from being a shepherd to being king, and of course to the story of Jesus from a humble manger to the right hand of God. Stories of humiliation and exaltation, a pattern familiar to all of us. It's familiar to all of us. I mean, once you were humbled by your sins, Humbled, I hope you know what it means when I say once you were humbled by your sins, but then you embraced Jesus as your Savior, Lord, and King, and you found yourself exalted to the position of being a child of the King, a citizen of his eternal kingdom, a member of the royal family. But yet, of course, in this fallen world, your life is filled with ups and downs. So now be challenged and encouraged by what Peter teaches you in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. This inspired, godly advice, which is so well emulated in Joseph's life, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. He's not going to let you slip beneath the waters. He will lift you up. And even when my friend Ted slipped beneath the waters, he was lifted up. He was lifted up into the presence of his Lord and Savior, our King and Sovereign, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray.